I'm Scott Benkin, president of Benkin Financial Services, and this is Investing for Better Living, a podcast where we'll be talking with CPAs, attorneys, doctors, real estate agents, fitness instructors, and many more experts in many different fields to talk about ways we can invest in our lives, making them richer, healthier, and more meaningful. I, in the last eight months, have seen three situations where people wrote their own will, and uh, it was a unqualified disaster. In one of the situations, we had to go to court, and the judge literally held up the will and said, this is why you don't do it yourself. Today, our guest is Tom Culpepper, attorney and owner of Culpepper Law LLC in Miamisburg, Ohio. After serving as an assistant prosecuting attorney, he became a juvenile prosecutor and within two weeks' time was in court on his own. Tom received a bachelor's in history pre-law from Campbell University and a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Toledo. In 2008, Tom graduated from the University of Dayton School of Law and became licensed to practice law in the state of Ohio. Tom opened his own law firm in 2011, specializing in estate planning. He's here with us today to share his knowledge and expertise and teach us about estate planning. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. Absolutely. Today, let's talk about one of your topics that you gave us, simple estate planning. Many of our clients, both your and my clients and listeners, might need to do a little bit more work on their estate. Do I need a will? Well, why do you need a will? I would say there are several reasons why any individual will need a will. First of all, you get to appoint an executor to administrate your estate after you passed away. If you don't do that, then your heirs or actually anyone, including your creditors, could apply to be the administrator of your estate. So that may not be what you want. So that's one of the advantages. A second one is you get to avoid bond. So the presumption of the Ohio legislature, and unfortunately it's more true than not, is that the people who administer your estate after you die might misappropriate or mismanage your money. And so the law is that any administrator has to be bonded at two times the value of your property that's not real estate because it's kind of hard for people to, you know, to steal real estate. It's just not easy to pick up and take away. So a bond can cost several hundred to several thousand dollars. So that saves that money. Another thing is I have had situations where even a spouse which had a bad credit rating, couldn't be bonded because they look at your credit rating. So the people you appoint may want to actually administer your estate, may not be able to do it. So one of the ways of avoiding that is just saying you don't need a bond and that's what you do in a will. You say, we don't need a bond. Another thing is the will will allow you to distribute your assets as you would want. Who gets the household goods, uh, who gets your car? Uh, do you want this bank account or this checking account go to this person or that person? And again, if, if you don't do that, then the state of Ohio has a specific statute that dictates who gets your money. 
that may or it may not be what you want. But you're giving up control if you don't create a will that specifies how your assets are going to be distributed when you pass away. Tom, is it possible that if I don't have a will that some of my money might go someplace that I really don't want it to? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, for example, I, I have clients, look, our, our, none of our kids are perfect. And I have clients who have kids who have drug addiction issues, who have mental health issues. And the last thing in the world these parents want to do is give large sums of money to a child who has a drug addiction or mental health issue who it may further their drug addiction or they just simply can't manage it. So absolutely. I've actually personally had two clients where that happened. They passed away and a non-responsible child received some of their parents' money and it literally killed them. They died yeah. because of addiction problems. Yeah. And that's that's a great example and, and you're absolutely right. I would say one more thing concerning do you need a will one of the things we put in a will is the power to sell real estate. And we have had situations where if you don't have a will, you have to sell real estate. And let's say one of the beneficiaries is a minor, you actually have to file a civil lawsuit in the probate court, which is extremely expensive and takes months to actually sell property that may need to be sold. And people just have no idea how problematic that is. So those are some very good reasons I tell people that you need a will. So it sounds like if I don't have a will, there could be a lot of problems and a will can help solve and clean things up. Is that right? You got it. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there more than one kind of will or are all wills the same? Well, it's a great question you ask. Probably be before I became a lawyer, I would have assumed that all wills are the same. And after I became a lawyer, I realized, wow, was I wrong. So typically a lot, for example, a lot of the wills I have seen are about two to four pages long. The wills I normally create are nine to 11 pages long. And so why is there a difference in the length? Well, let me tell you this as a lawyer. We don't put language in a document like that just because we like nice poetry or it sounds good. It's usually there because something went wrong somewhere. And so if I'm a good attorney and I'm working at my craft, as things change, I'm going to have to add language. So just take, for example, we now have money in the cloud called cryptocurrency. It's a unique type of asset that has all sorts of complexities and how does an executor deal with that? Well, I have to put language now because we now have this new type of ethereal currency out there. If you can call it a currency, maybe it's an investment. I don't know that I have to add language. And so what happens if I keep working at my crap, my wills keep getting longer and I think they become more comprehensive. They address more issues that can go wrong. And what they do is a better job of protecting the client. So my answer is, in some, all wills are not equal. Generally, the longer they are, the better they are because they're going to protect you. They're going to be more comprehensive. That's a pet peeve of mine, short wills that aren't comprehensive and don't protect the client to the way they should. So there's wills and there are there other documents that people should consider? 
Absolutely. So one of the things you're going to hear from me is I describe myself as a comprehensive estate planning attorney. And part of that to me means I'm trying to cover everything that can go wrong. Because if something happens that we don't plan for, often there's no do-over. And I don't think I've done the job as an attorney. So one of the areas is documents. And so my experience has been the typical lawyer who does a little bit of everything will usually create four documents for, for most people. They'll create a will. They will create a financial power of attorney. You'll also hear it called a general power of attorney. They will create a healthcare power of attorney, and they will create something called a living will, which is just a healthcare declaration that if you're dying or brain dead, let me die. So what I have discovered over the years that four documents, I don't think were comprehensive enough to protect my clients. So I'm up to eight to 10 documents. So we've already talked about the will. I would do that as well. I will also do the financial power of attorney, even though mine, like the will, is longer than most for the same reasons I discussed the will. Healthcare power of attorney is going to be the same because that's a state document created by the General Assembly. But let me add some other documents in that I do. Um, and by the way, I don't do li living wills anymore. A lot of attorneys do. I just don't think you need it if you have a, a good healthcare power of attorney one. And I've, I've had a growing suspicion of not trusting the medical community um, for reasons I don't want to doubt them too much. But I've been to some seminars that uh, didn't reassure me as an attorney that I wanted to leave the medical community and controlling about where they pulled a plug on me or not, or put me on a ventilator or not. So some of the other documents that I add in are one called a healthcare decision matrix. So one of the problems I've discovered over the years with Ohio's healthcare power of attorney is unless you were dying or brain dead, the document was silent on what type of medical decisions you or I, Scott, would want for uh, ourselves. You know, let's say someone has um, had a stroke that has severely damaged their brain and then they come down with cancer. Well, maybe depending upon the level of the damage and the, and the deterioration of the quality of our life, maybe we won't be treated for cancer. Maybe we wouldn't because we all know we're going to eventually die and maybe we wouldn't want to be kept alive. And so we added a document we call a healthcare decision matrix that gives a little bit of insight into that. Um, because, and another thing is I have seen families blow up over these medical decisions for mom or dad. You have multiple children, or if you are in a blended marriage, the kids either don't agree with the stepmom or stepdad, or they, they may not agree among themselves. And so I think Documents like this are very important, and we've added that in to our estate planning. We also do a standalone HIPAA waiver. As a lot of us know, in 1996, the federal government passed the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And one of the aspects of that is you can no longer even get access to your spouse's private health care information. Yet, if my spouse or my children are supposed to make health care decisions for me, would make sense that I should waive that so they can get access to that information. We've also added a document uh, we call an advanced directive for dementia. The reason we've done this is 
we're living longer in the United States, but it doesn't mean that our minds and bodies are healthier. I think the stat I did research on back in 2018 was about 53% of Americans who make it to 85 have some level of Alzheimer's and dementia. So that means a lot of us are actually dying of those diseases. And one of the problems is, is in the very last stages, people will stop eating. But you may live days or weeks if someone puts a feeding tube in. But you can see the family saying, hold on, what's the point? Um, at, because at that point, your mind is so far gone. You don't know if you're on Earth or Mars. Your mind has basically died potentially already or is, is close to it. So we created a document for people to address that situation because it's very stressful and very difficult I mean, just to be bluntly honest, to think about, I'm starving my parent to death. That's a tough question that needs to be answered. And I find if my clients answer that, it relieves the stress from the children of having to make that decision, the emotional guilt, because they know that's their parent had thought through this and says this thing. Another document we've added is dealing just with passwords, with everybody wanting to go paperless, people will die. All of a sudden, even a spouse, they can't get access to their bank account because the information is on their phone or on their computer. Just this week, I had somebody come in who had passed away and the spouse was just thanking us that we had provided this document that forced them to write down the passwords and that when one spouse died, they were able to get access to the financial information and do what they needed to do. So um, definitely needed We've added two other documents related to funeral and burial. I've discovered over the years that planning your funeral or, as I like to say, the internment of your body is a whole lot more complex than you, you think. I use the analogy, it's a whole lot more like a wedding um, as far as a lot of small details. Um, what type of casket do you want? What type of flowers? Just sort of a humorous side note, uh, for a few years, I didn't even know that, Scott, there's something called Viking funerals. I mean, so you talking about details. I mean, it's like they'll they'll dress you up. You can pick out your gown, your suit. They'll put you out on a funeral pyre like a road on a lake and shoot a flaming arrow out there and you take care of your remains that way. I had no idea. <laughs> so there's a lot of options now and people haven't even thought about it. And so what part of my job, again, as an estate planning attorney is help people plan not only for their financial distribution, not only for healthcare decisions, but how is your body going to be interned? And so there's a lot of options out there. And so it's a lot more complex than you think. One, and number two, I've discovered that grieving loved ones are poor planners. Often they'll get taken advantage of, they'll buy goods and services that maybe or the person who died wouldn't have wanted. And family members, again, can get in fights over these things of what mom or dad would want. And if they don't specify, people won't talk to one another in the family. Uh, and I've seen this happen. The last document that we do is we just call it a personal property memorandum, or I affectionately call it the who gets the stuff in your house document. Again, I've seen families blow up over that, disputes over who gets what in the house. Most of the time it doesn't, but sometimes it does. And so this document allows people to uh, designate uh, or easily change designations 
they may have in a will or trust as to who gets this or that or the other. You know, I've seen, um, I don't know how many times when I've had people come back to review our clients to review their documents. Oh, I already gave that away to my granddaughter or whatever. And, but I bought something new that I want to give away. So, and that's why I said, well, you should have wrote that down in this personal property memorandum. So anyway, that long answer. I am a lawyer after <laughs> all, but I believe that people need something more like eight to 10 top documents rather than the typical four I've heard from almost every sort of general practicing attorney out there. That makes sense. With all these complex options available, it sounds like trying to do it myself might not be a good idea. So what are some of the common mistakes you see people make that do try to do their estate planning themselves? Well, I'm glad you asked. Not that I have an opinion on this, (laughs) but but, uh, it is a major struggle. We are a society of do-it-yourself people, and there are organizations out there who clearly claim that you can do your own estate planning. You don't need to use an attorney. And I have some grave concerns about their representations. I wrote an article a few years ago called Why uh, Do-It-Yourself Estate Planning is a Bad Idea. And I, I listed five reasons, but here's my number one. I'll, I'll keep it short. I'll give you one. Mistakes, Okay. I, in the last eight months, have seen three situations where people wrote their own will, and uh, it was a unqualified disaster. In one of the situations, we had to go to court, and the judge literally held up the will and said, this is why you don't do it yourself. The person literally disinherited the very people he wanted to get his property. So mistakes are it, but uh, I took a picture of a website of an organization I will not name that's well-known for promoting do-it-yourself legal documents. And on their website, this is their quote. They said, do you know, not know, that something to the extent that 80% of the people who use sort of boilerplate legal documents to do estate planning make mistakes? Hmm. Now, I wonder how they got that data. My guess is they did their own research and they claimed 80% of probably the people who went to their website to do it, their own estate planning, they discovered were making mistakes. So was that a disclaimer? Well, no, it was a money-making opportunity because their next sentence is they said, why don't you talk to one of our professionals for a, a cheap fee? And so if you've just drafted your own will, what professional would you go talk to? A lawyer? (laughs) Absolutely. And so I've done some trial work before, and and that's about as close as to a Perry Mason admission that they're basically on the backside saying, you can't do it. Our own experience shows us our clients can't do it. They're making mistakes. We want you to go see one of our lawyers to have it reviewed. I take that as a tacit admission that people actually can't do it, and they've discovered they can't do it. Wow, that's a really good point. So when transferring assets to heirs, kids, things of that nature, if I have property, what are some of the ways that I can transfer my property to the kids or to individuals? Well, there are four ways that an individual can transfer their property when they pass away. So one of them is through the probate system, and probate is a um, 
court-supervised, I like to call it a quasi-lawsuit uh, that your executor or administrator files against you to get the jurisdiction of the probate judge in the county you died living in to walk through probably a lot of times it's an eight to 12 month process to transfer your property. A second way, and a lot of married couples are familiar with this, is to jointly own property with someone else and somewhere on the title to the car or the deed to the real estate or the bank account, it says that whoever survives gets the property. So we call that this technical name is joint tenancy with right of survivorship. A third way to pass your property on when you die is naming a beneficiary. You know, people are familiar with life insurance and retirement accounts because they always get, hopefully always get asked, who are the beneficiaries? Probably most people would be surprised to find that most assets that people own in the state of Ohio, there's actually a beneficiary form. We even have a beneficiary form in Ohio for real estate. Hmm. I think uh, my research indicated um, that it's only 18 states that have that type of ability uh, to name a beneficiary of real estate. And your fourth way is a trust, some version of a trust. So you've got four options to transfer your property when you pass away. You mentioned uh, making beneficiaries to the kids of different investment, uh, like maybe IRAs, life insurance. Do you see mistakes very often when people are completing the forms themselves? Yeah, I do. People think, you know, how can I screw this up? I'm just writing somebody's name down and I'm putting a percentage in the box. But it's a little more nuanced and complex than that. So one mistake I see people make and they don't realize this is my experience been is let's say a beneficiary has three children and their spouse has died and so they want to they name their three children equally to get let's say their retirement account well, what i've discovered is most people if one of their children died and they had they themselves had children in other words this would be the beneficiary's grandchildren they would want their third to go to their grandkids what they don't realize is that the default rule is usually that it only goes to the next generation if all three beneficiaries have died. So what that means is the two surviving kids, for example, would get all the money and the grandchildren of the child that died get nothing. They basically get disowned. Um, and even if you have contingent beneficiaries on the form, like I've seen people, they'll put the children down, grandchildren down as contingent beneficiaries. They don't realize, though, all the children have to first die for that contingent beneficiary to go of their grandchildren to work. And they don't realize that. And so that's one mistake I see people make. Uh, another one is people will say one thing in their will, and then the way they draft their beneficiary forms is different. I was aware of a situation where I think a certain amount of money was promised to a son in the will, and, and I think the son was aware that the will said that. But when the uh, parent went to draft their beneficiary forms, they drafted them in a way that no money went through probate. You got to realize wills only affect probate. So if you name beneficiaries on all your cash, there is no cash going through your probate. So first of all, basically your designation in your will 
is nullified. And so what you have to do and what we do is we look at when people are going to use a beneficiary form to pass their property on, we make sure it matches what they say in their will because effectively they're bypassing their will, but we're trying to make sure they effectuate what they wanted in their will and the way they do the beneficiary forms. But I've seen them, people name too many people or name different percentages. And what happened in this case is the person didn't get anywhere near the amount of money that they were promised in the will. Hmm. And so you have to line up your beneficiary designations with whatever your will or trust say. And I said, that's another common mistake we actually see a lot. So it sounds like if you have one set of instructions in your will and another set of instructions in your beneficiary designation, they don't necessarily match up. Correct. Yeah, you have to coordinate. Um, there is a logical order that property is passed. Again, I, t I said there were four ways to pass property. But if you, for example, use, like I said, a joint tenancy with right of survivorship, or you use a beneficiary form, and there actually is no property going through your probate estate, which is where the will works, you basically nullified everything you put in the will, and it may not match up with your actual intent. So hmm. that's I know that's a little bit complex, but it does happen. We've talked about probate, but exactly what is probate? And is it a good idea for me to try to avoid it? I am of a member of uh, a group of attorneys who, or a percentage of attorneys who think you should probably try to avoid probate. And I'll give you three main reasons why. My first is of the four ways to transfer property that I mentioned, Probate is probably, number one, it's the longest. It usually, like I said before, takes about eight to 12 months if it's a full administration. That's one thing. The other thing, a second thing, is it's probably the most expensive of the four ways to transfer your property. I tell people somewhere between three to 8% of your gross estate is lost in the probate process. And I've seen plenty of examples that that's fairly consistent. Um, so, I mean, just for example, if you died owning a million dollars and it all went through probate, don't be surprised that your probate expenses are going to be at least $30,000. Hmm, okay. I mean, you could do some dynamite estate planning for $30,000. Estate planning that would help you avoid that. And uh, my third reason for avoiding probate is it's public. And people don't really realize this, but and this is why I call the probate process a kind of a quasi-lawsuit. One of the things about our justice system is it's supposed to be open for everyone to see to make sure that no one's hiding anything. Well, the problem with that in probate is that means your will is online now. Or anybody could literally, any stranger could go down to a probate court and get a copy of everything in there. And one of the things they would find is your will. So they can read that. They can also get a list of your beneficiaries. So one of the things that's required to be filed in probate is a list of your heirs and their addresses. So that's public record. And a third thing is you have to file an inventory of the assets that went through the probate process and who got them. It's all public record. Everybody can see who inherited from yeah. you and how much they got. Years ago, I had a client pass that had a business and it, of course, went to his wife and a competitor of his went through the probate process, found out how much debt his wife had, and then offered her a low ball bid on the business. And he 
basically stole it for the debt that the widow, that the estate had. Wow. And it was all because it was open to the public. So it can be pretty tough out there. Yeah, I don't think most people want want that information to be public. Now, we know a lot of people and both you and I know people and we have clients that own property in other states. How do I avoid property if I have real estate in other other states? Well, again, let's go back. You got four options. And if you want to avoid probate, you're left with three. The problem with joint tenancy with right of survivorship, or I'll just call it right of survivorship, is it works well with spouses, but I wouldn't recommend it with anybody else. Um, the example I always tell my clients is I've seen my 84-year-old mother drive a car. I am not putting my name on that car so when she dies, I get it because if she kills somebody, my name's on it. Guess who else gets sued? Hmm. You know, you have to realize that when you, you're giving, with joint tenancy, you're giving ownership of your house, your car, your bank account to someone else. It could be a child, but anything bad that happens to them happens to you when, the, as far as that asset. So I don't recommend that. So if I'm dealing ultimately with uh, somebody, we're left with two options left, beneficiary forms, and we're left with uh, a trust. So one of the problems if you have property in another state is if it's land or if it's tangible property like furniture or a car, that state, I would use a beneficiary form if they have it. But I told what I told you earlier is one of the problems with real estate is often there is no beneficiary form. Um, in fact, where my mother lives in North Carolina, there's no beneficiary form for automobiles either. Hmm. And so you're left with one option, a trust. And that is one of the primary reasons that people will use a trust so that they don't have, they can avoid probate in another state. So for example, if you own property in two or three states, I'm talking about land, I should have been clear. You may, if someone dies, and if you don't use a trust, you may have to have three or four probate matters open in three or four states. And that can hmm. get rather expensive. That would be inconvenient. That would More be than just inconvenient. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Now, some of our listeners have minor children. What do we need to do in our, in our wills, if that's the direction we choose to go, about naming guardians? What if there's somebody out there that we would like not to have a guardian of our children? What are some of the things that we need to take into consideration? The first thing I would say, and I'm glad you brought this up, it is, it's a passion of mine, is I don't, think, I don't think most people today when we have, when they have children, first thought is I need to name guardians. Because of modern medicine, um, people, parents are usually surviving. It used to be obviously not so long ago, a lot of women passed away in childbirth and people got sick and died much earlier. And so it was much more on people's minds to name guardians. But the problem is, and this is where I come back to being a comprehensive attorney, it still happens. People still pass away and kids are orphaned. And so one of the things I want to emphasize to parents is I think it is important for you to name guardians for your children. Now, a second reason, and you mentioned this, is you also get to pick then who raises your kids. And I have had numerous clients who had individuals in their family who, should I say, over my dead body, are you being the guardian of my child? But 
if you do nothing, you're giving up that control. I mean, anybody can apply to be the guardian of your child, a friend, a family member. The court will consider that. They tend to favor family members. So yeah, I think you need to do it. And uh, one of the things you can do is name guardians. But we even take it a step further. We even have a document where you can specifically make sure certain people don't become guardians and by specifying why you don't want them to be guardians. It could be you have personal knowledge that they have, I don't know, drug addiction issues or they're, you don't agree with their parenting philosophy or their worldview and you some, want your children. Some things that the court won't know about. No. And, and it may not come out. Absolutely. Yeah, it yeah, it may not sense. come out. And so, yeah, we, we not only affirm that people should pick guardians, but also that they should name people they do not want in to be guardians of their children and why. We have clients and I know a lot of clients and that maybe their kids are grown. I have widows and widowers that all the kids are gone and they have pets. And those are now their new children, so to speak. Can that be dealt with in a will? Uh, what do people do with their pets when they're gone? Can they plan for pets? Absolutely. And so at minimally, one of the things, uh, now you got to realize that pets, even though most people view them as their children, at law, they are property. And so they get distributed just like any other type of property. And so one of the things you can do is nominate, number one, someone specifically to take your pets, or you could name several people who will take care of your pets. Um, and that's important to know because if you pass away, someone obviously needs to immediately tend to your pets. Another thing you can do, and I encourage clients to do this, is leave some money to the people who are going to be taking your pets, who are going to basically be inheriting your pets because, as all of us know who've had pets, medical bills and other things can get rather expensive uh, with your pets and feeding them and boarding them in certain situations. And so I will always encourage clients to, depending upon the age of the pet, at least leave several thousand dollars to the people who are going to be inheriting your pets. That's a good idea. So if I have decided that simple estate planning is not as simple as I thought it was, and I'm going to go out there and look for a good estate planning attorney, what are some of the things I should look for? I tell people three things. The first thing I try to tell them is you want somebody who focuses just in the area of estate planning. It's just common sense. The more you do of something, the better you're at. It's a struggle for me and, and we focus just in doing estate planning, meaning we create the documents and help people avoid probate and things like that. It's tough for me to keep up with the law just in one area. If I was doing divorces and bankruptcies and rep representing people and speeding tickets, I would be overwhelmed. Pick somebody, you can look at their website. If they claim to do everything, my advice is to shy away and look for somebody who just focuses in the estate planning area. So that's my first thing. So rather than a general practitioner, someone that specializes in estate planning. Yes. And if I can dissuade people from thinking I just need a simple estate plan. I don't know how many times I've heard that. I don't know what simple means to people. You know, to me, it means I have no money. I have no children. 
I mean, that's simple, but I have people who tell me that all the time that have several children, they have significant assets, they have business interests, um, they may be in a blended marriage, and they'll tell me, oh, I, it's simple. I'm like, no, simple is you don't, you're not married, you don't have children, and you have no money. That's simple. <laughs> I don't know what people I, think is simple. I guess they think they're not Elon Musk. All right. Maybe anybody other than Elon Musk doesn't need, or Bill Gates need, doesn't need complex estate planning. Just not true. Um, the third thing I tell people is they're likable. Okay. You don't want a lifetime relationship with your criminal law attorney, your bankruptcy attorney, or your um, divorce attorney. You know, if you have to see one of those three, you just want it to be one time in your life. But estate planning is different because things change over time. Your documents are going to have to be updated. You know, this is the one area of law that you sort of want your estate planning attorney to be like a family doctor. And so they don't have to be your bestie, but you do <laughs> want to like them, feel like you want to come back to them and they're working at their craft. They're always improving and they've got you protected. So that's sort of my three for how to choose an attorney for estate planning. Well, that sounds like great advice. Thanks, Tom. I really do appreciate all the education and knowledge that you shared with our listeners today. And uh, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate having me on. For those of you who would like more information on Tom's firm, you can visit him on the web at CulpeperLawLLC.com. That's C U L P E P P. E-R-L-A-W-L-L-C.com. You can also find Culpepper Law on Facebook and look for reviews on Google. Their office number is 937-589-4144. We also have links for him in our show notes. I'm Scott Benkin. Join us next time as we continue to investigate ways to invest in fuller, richer, and more meaningful lives. Securities offered through S.A. Stonewealth Management, Inc., member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services provided through Miami Valley Portfolio Management, Inc. Miami Valley Portfolio Management, Inc. is not affiliated with S.A. Stonewealth Management, Inc.